6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 John, chapter 1. Well, we're going to explore, the, we're exploring the epistles of John, and we're entering the first epistle of John. We did it backwards in the minds of many. We took the third and second epistles first, partly because they set, they set the stage for what we call 1 John. 1 John is actually a sermon and sent to many churches. But the, the background that emerged from our previous studies, I think, is useful. So we did an inverse order, 3, 2, 1. But we're now entering a five-week study of 1 John. And uh, the early church in the first century was under attack from both the inside and the outside. So what's changed for us, right? It should not surprise us that the Holy Spirit has anticipated every conceivable form of attack in the Scripture. And uh, every form of attack and diversion. And these three epistles are full of insights that are timely for each of us today, at the personal level as well as the corporate level. And uh, this is going to climax here in what's called 1 John. And uh, who is John? Well, he's the brother of James the Greater. And uh, he was probably the younger of the sons of Zebedee and Salome. And he was born in Bethsaida. And his father was apparently a man of some wealth because he had a, quite a business there. He doubtless uh, trained uh, uh, in all that constituted the normal education of a Jewish youth. When he grew up, he followed the occupation of a fisherman with his family on the Sea of Galilee. So don't assume that a fisherman was some kind of illiterate, blue-collar type character. Uh, many of them were probably, but uh, J- uh, John was, had the benefic- benefit of an uh, 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 education of a Jewish youth. And uh, when John the Baptist, different John now, when John the Baptist began his ministry in the wilderness of Judea, John, with many of the others, gathered around him and was deeply influenced by John the Baptist's teaching. And there he heard the announcement. John the Baptist twice he introduced Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God. You know, that's a very Jewish title that he uses. And on the invitation of Jesus, John the Apostle, that would be the Apostle, became a disciple of John the Baptist. And, and well, he was, but now he's a John. He became a disciple of Jesus, and he ranked among his followers for a time. He and his brother then returned to their former avocation, but it's not, uh, uh, it's not certain for how long. And so uh, Jesus again called them, and now they left all and permanently joined the company of his disciples. There's sort of two callings here. One, just to be a believer, but then being called to actually follow Christ full-time is the second step here that's in, in view. And for their zeal and intensity of character, Jesus named both he and his brother with a nickname, Boanerges, which is Sons of Thunder. I'm always amused by that because I remember as a kid in Sunday school with pictures and stuff, you always see John somehow uh, portrayed in sort of feminine terms. And uh, that's not scriptural. These guys were, these are rough and ready guys. The Sons of Thunder was our Lord's own nickname for them. And this spirit of what the Jews would call chutzpah, 
broke out on a number of occasions as you read the Gospels. You'll find that these guys are, are pretty gutsy guys. And so, now John attains insider status. He became one of the innermost circle. He was present at the raising of Jairus' daughter in Mark 5. He was present at the transfiguration in Matthew 17. He was in the inner group at Gethsemane in Matthew 26. And of course, he was one of four. They had the three plus Andrew were, were treated an inside briefing on the uh, Mount of Olives at night, which becomes the Olivet Discourse, as recorded in Matthew 24, and it's also recorded in Mark 13. So we'll be encountering that in, 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 in uh, the, before the end of Mark. And he was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was a term that the gospel uses of John. That's his way of not using his own his name, in a sense. Now that final week of John's gospel, uh, at the, and, and it constitutes a major portion of John's gospel, by the way, that last week of Christ's ministry. At the betrayal, he and Peter followed Christ afar off, while the others fled hastily. And at the trial, he followed Christ into the council chamber, which means he had some kind of political leverage here to even have access there. And he went from thence to the praetorium, and then to the place of crucifixion. That, that, that implied he had, he had some kind of leverage here. And Mary, of course, was consigned to John's care at the cross. And of course, we uh, dealt with that heavily when we went to John 2 for a number of reasons. We explored that in depth in our previous session. And to both uh, John and Peter, Mary first conveyed tidings of the resurrection. That's Mary Magdalene, that is. And they were the first to go and see what her strange words meant. And uh, that's where we found out that John could outrun uh, Peter, right? So after, after the resurrection, he and Peter again returned to the Sea of Galilee, where the Lord revealed himself to them. And we find Peter and John frequently together. They, they apparently bonded, even though they had some interesting differences. And uh, so it was, uh, they, they were very, they were good friends. John remained apparently in Jerusalem among the leadership. He apparently was not there, however, at the time of Paul's last visit. And uh, his subsequent history is unrecorded. He appears to have retired in Ephesus, but at what time is a little unclear. And these three epistles are generally presumed to have been written from Ephesus. I personally don't share that view, don't have any evidence of it, but I think he was writing to Mary, who was at Ephesus. He was away from Ephesus when he wrote John 2. But that's really not material. He suffered under persecution and was banished to Patmos, as we all know, which led to the book of Revelation. And then he returned to Ephesus later, where he died. And there are those that believe he wrote, he wrote his gospel at Ephesus after Patmos. That comes as a surprise to many. And uh, there is some some justification for that view. But in any case, this is probably about 80, 98, having outlived nearly all his friends and companions, uh, and, and even more of his mature years. And there's some extra biblical evidence that he may have written his gospel after Patmos. So uh, my friend Hal Lindsay has taken that view, and, and uh, I don't know the full basis of it, but that is that apparently is a view he's being drawn to. Well, there are many interesting traditions regarding John's residence at Ephesus, but you, you, these can't claim the character of uh, historical truth. There are stories about his, the unsuccessful attempts to boil him in oil, and there's all these crazy stories that in the early church that don't have any, uh, there's no, uh, they have no historical basis that we know of. Now, John wrote five books in the New Testament. The, uh, the Gospel, the Book of Revelation, of course, and these three epistles that we're studying. And most uh, scholars assume that the epistle was written last, just before the close of the first century, I don't hold that view, but that's not material. And uh, the distinctives of his gospel is that his purpose is clearly declared. It's not an unbiased historian's account. 
It's an editorial piece. He wrote these to that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He has a he has an agenda in his writings. And he does this also in his epistle seven times, by the way. And uh, the heptatic structure, the sevenfold structure, which is characteristic of the book of Revelation, is also very evident throughout his other writings. That may come as a surprise. It's obvious in Revelation. There's sevens and sevens and sevens of sevens. But uh, uh, in the gospel, it's hidden, but it's there. And in the epistles, you'll see it as we go through it here. In the book of Revelation, of course, it's heptatic structure is very obvious. and We won't take time to get into that here. There's some interesting designations that I get, that haunt me. I have to point. The term friend is the term used of Abraham. He was a friend of God. And it occurs in Genesis 18. Shall I hide from him the thing which I am to do? The concept of friendship is related by God himself to the letting him in on what's coming. That's part of friendship here. The disciples, Jesus said to his disciples, now you're my friends. And that leads to chapters 14 and 15 of the uh, upper room discourse. They're, his, they're no longer his servants, his friends, and he then deigns to tell them what's coming. So that linkage is there. The word beloved is the same thing exaggerated. Daniel is called the beloved prophet of the Old Testament. And of course, Daniel has the apocalyptic visions that characterize the last six chapters of the 12th chapter book of Daniel. John is called the beloved disciple. We all know that, but it has occurred to you that he too is the one that authored the apocalypse of the New Testament. So there's a, I think there's an interesting, interesting linkage there that is fruitful. But the writings of John, the Gospel of John, of course, has its distinctives. The book of Revelation has its septatic structure. The epistles of John, third, second, and first. We have studied the first two, Gaius and the elect lady. Uh, but uh, we did that partly to set the stage for first John, as it's called, which is written not to a specific church, but to the church at large. And so it's really more of a sermon than a letter in that sense. Now, the general background, he had insider status we talked about, um, and I think this is a, the consignment of Mary at the cross. We mentioned that before, the final week, the later years. Okay. And Ephesus, of course, is the scene of his final retirement. But in John's writings, let's understand when he wrote his gospel, he said, he explained why he wrote it. He says, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So this is not an unbiased account. It's a deliberate attempt to, to uh, present um, uh, Jesus to be, uh, uh, for the purpose of belief. Now, looking back at the four Gospels, Matthew, of course, gave us the promised one. We see his credentials in Matthew. Mark is going to talk about how he worked, his power. And Luke is what he was like, his nature. And John, who he actually was, his godship. And my main quarrel with Mel Gibson's movie, The, the, the Passion, is not with some of the details people quibble over, not at all. I think it's a phenomenal piece of work. But it has two defects. It presents the cross as a tragedy. No, it was an achievement planned before the foundation of the world. But the real thing, it didn't communicate who Jesus is. His Godship. And that's the critical thing that John deals with in his gospel, of course, but in the book of Revelation as a climax. But even in these letters, we're going to see that come through. And I think it's useful for us to have in perspective the four gospels. Matthew presents Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Messiah. Mark, the suffering servant. Luke, the son of man. He's a doctor. And John, the son of God. And uh, the genealogies in those support the main theme. Matthew uh, takes the legal one, as a Jew would, from Abraham. Mark does not have a genealogy. 
Luke has a genealogy. It starts with the first man, with Adam, all the way through to the through Mary, and then John um, deals with the uh, the genealogy of the pre-existent one in the first three verses. We'll be looking at that a little bit here. Matthew focuses on what Jesus actually said. Mark what he actually did. Luke gives us a glimpse of how he felt, and John who he was. And uh, so uh, Matthew wrote to the Jew. Mark and Luke wrote to the Roman and the Greek, respectively but a Gentile both in that sense, but uh, John, of course, to the church, if you will. The first miracle supports that theme. The first miracle in, to a Jew would be the leper cleanse. That's a very Jewish perception there, because to the Jew, leper, leprosy was a type of sin. Mark and Luke to the Gentiles, demon expelled. John has a strange one, the water to wine. It's the mystical one, which, of course, relates to the church and the Last Supper that knows and so forth. Matthew ends with the resurrection, Mark with the ascension. Luke ends with the promise of the Holy Spirit, setting the stage for his sequel, called Luke Volume 2, or commonly called the Book of Acts. And John ends with the promise of the return, setting the stage, if you will, for the Book of Revelation. And so each, the last two deal with their sequels. And when you camp these four signs, the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle, we notice that they seem to comply with those four Gospels. That's been recognized even by the early church in many ways. The lion being the lion of the tribe of Judah, the ox being the symbolic beast of burden, the man, be, of course, being the man, and, and the eagle uh, to, to John. And their styles are different with grouping, snapshots, and, and a narrative, and the mystical John. So, But in a couple of key verses from the gospel, and then we'll get into his letter. A key verse that I don't want to uh, forget to highlight, in John chapter 1, his gospel, he says, he, speaking of Christ, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, the word sons of God in the Hebrew, Benaiah Elohim, is a direct creation of God. It's a term used of angels in the Old Testament. And uh, But here, see, we're, people are not sons of God. They're sons of Adam. But he came, as many as received Christ, to them gave he the power to become a direct creation of God, namely the sons of God. That's why we call it a new birth. And that's, and, and that's why you are, if you're in Christ, you are a new creature, new creation. Even to them that believe on his name. Praise God for that. Key verse. The power to become the sons of God. As many as believed on him, and when you go through his gospel, Peter, Nathaniel, Nicodemus, Sychar, woman, the man born blind, Mary and Martha, Bethany, 11 apostles, Mary Magdalene, Peter. There's a whole sequence there. There's a great confrontation in the Gospel of John. I just tried to, before we get into this, hit some of the highlights of John so you have a, a glimpse of the man. But uh, in John chapter 8, there's a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And uh, they, they, they said, we were not born of fornication. They're calling him an illegitimate bastard. So don't let the polite King James hide the fact there's a tension going on here. Well, before they're through, Jesus explains their fatherhood to them. You're going to call me illegitimate? He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews, if thou art not yet fifty years old, hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you. You know, when Jesus wanted to emphasize something, he says, I say unto you such and such. When he want to underline it twice, he say, Verily, I say unto you. When he really want to underline it, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, to you and I in English and as Gentiles, we don't, get, we don't grab that. What does that mean? No, he's declaring 
that he was the voice of the burning bush in Exodus 4. You and I missed the point. They didn't. Whenever you and I as Gentile readers run the risk of missing a point, the Pharisees come to our rescue. Because every time they get upset, they underline it in a way that we can relate to. See the next verse, then they took up stones to cast at him. Why? Because he claimed to be the voice of the burning bush. He claimed to be God. And I'll come back to that in a minute. And they, 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 they took stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. That explains exactly what happened. I have no idea how he got out of there, but he slipped through, right? Okay. Knowing how angry they were, that was a non-trivial thing, but there it is. I am that I am, is what God said in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And Jesus is going to make seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life in chapter 6. I am the light of the world in chapter 8. I am the door of the sheep in chapter 10. I am the good shepherd in chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life in verse chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and life, of course, in chapter 14. We've all memorized that verse. And I am the true vine, chapter 15. Seven. There are seven miracles, seven discourses, seven I am statements that make up the structure of the Gospel of John. You miss that reading it because it goes so smoothly. You don't, you're not sensitive to its architecture. But the heptatic structure is, is there, nevertheless. He's the pre-existent one. How does the Gospel open up? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Well, this means he was God. No, he's also beside himself. If I can be a little flippant here. No, there's that's the, the trilogy is evident there. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. But his title, all through John, is the Word of God. That is a title that John uses again and again and again. So be sensitive to that. And the incarnation, a few verses later, he says, the Word was made flesh and, and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And there again we have the Word became flesh. That's the thing that is missing in, John, in Mel Gibson's uh, provocative movie, The Passion. Who he really was. He was God himself that entered his creation. And we get to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see John writing, I saw heaven and open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And a couple of verses later he says, And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And that blood is not his blood. That's the blood of his enemies. Where does that take place? In Isaiah 63. It lays it out for you. But anyway, his name is called the Word of God, title of Christ. It's interesting that the we know in science today that the vanguard of science, in every field of science, the boundary area is the information sciences. In biology, it's not biology anymore. It's coding theory. It's information theory. In physics, it's particle physics. It's uh, in every field of science, the boundary that we encounter is the information sciences. It's the ultimate science in a sense. And it's interesting how the word, the logos, is the title of Christ. How interesting. There's a fundamental that we're dealing with there in both cases. So uh, second epistle of John that we just finished, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth and so forth. Who is the elect lady? Most people don't recognize it, but I believe for reasons that I'll show you that that is Mary. And uh, so it, that changes the entire sense of the whole letter. Who is the elect lady? She's the elect lady. Who, all they that have no... I, 
whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but all they that have known the truth love her. So that's not just a prominent per- person in the in the uh, congregation of Ephesus. She's a she she's the most uh, most elect of all women, and uh, you know, Jesus consigned her to uh, John the Apostle, not his his blood brothers and children, uh, sisters, whom I love in the truth, also they have known the truth which we had from the beginning. By the way, she also had a sister, which is referenced in the letter. But another verse that uh, I'll highlight to you is in Luke, the Annunciation. When the angel came to Mary uh, and came unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. I submit to you that that alone identifies who the elect lady is that John is writing to, for what it's worth. There's no other woman more singularly elected than Mary, if you will. And not only that, she was specifically consigned to John's care, so it's natural that he would write her an intimate, private, personal letter of encouragement and also exhortation. So uh, we could go through her. We did that last time. I'll leave that. We'll just go ahead here. And so the second epistle of John, practical, walk in love, the divine insistence upon love, the human expression of love is all in there, the doubt to watch against error, warning against false teaching, warning against false charity, and parting comments is the letter, and that's from last time. The third epistle we took earlier talks about about, about three uh, people. Gaius was that, he was one of the good guys, did well. Diotrephes was uh, uh, the loser; he's the problem guy, evil by pride and strife. Demetrius is commended, so that's just some personal letters that uh, John includes. Now we're into what we want, where we're going to start the big trek here. First John. John's gospel speaks of our past. It has to do with salvation. Our salvation is a done deal. It was done on a wooden cross 2,000 years ago. John's letters deal with our present. It has to do with sanctification. John's letters presume you're saved. It deals with how you should be walking. And John's revelation is our future, the glorious appearing. So if you think of John's gospel letters and revelation as past, present, future focus, Maybe that's helpful. But First uh, John has been called the sanctum centorum of the New Testament. It takes the child of God into the fellowship of the Father's home. We're going to experience in this letter a focus on fellowship that is unequaled anywhere else in the New Testament. Paul's epistles and all the other epistles are church epistles. But this is a family epistle. And it may prove more important to the individual believer than all the church epistles. Paul's letters were primarily to the churches. Yes, there's individual instructions, of course, but uh, they're addressed to, they're, they're the church epistles. This one is family. And life is real. And it's a battleground, not a playground. And that's what John is going to be dealing with. This is one of the sons of thunder writing you his letter. This isn't some namby-pamby preacher. This is the son of thunder, if you will. And if a person is wrong about Jesus Christ, he's wrong about God. And if he's wrong about God, he's wrong about everything else. That's, that's basically John's logic in this letter. Now, there's seven contrasts of truth and error in this letter. Now, I want you to start noticing the sevens. The light versus the darkness. The Father versus the world. Christ versus the Antichrist in chapter 2. Good works versus evil works in chapter 2. The, the, the Holy Spirit versus error in chapter 4. Love versus pious pretense in chapter 4. The God-born versus all the others in chapter 5. But again, it's sevenfold contrasts we're going to discover as we proceed through this uh, letter. 
There are going to be seven tests we're going to look at. The tests of our profession in chapter 1 and 2. Tests of our desire in chapter 2. Tests of doctrine will be called for in chapter 2. Tests of conduct in chapter 2 and 3. Tests of discernment in chapter 4. Tests of motive in chapter 4. And of new birth in chapter 5. This is not a, uh, a, a, a this is not a uh, introductory course for new believers just getting started. This is heavy stuff. This is serious stuff. So be ready to go deeply into John's uh, 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 narrative here. The heptatic structure, we have seven traits of the born again. We have seven reasons why this epistle is written. We have seven tests of the Christian's genuineness, seven tests of honesty and reality. We're going to also encounter six liars, not seven, six, and because uh, lion, lion isn't finished, there's still more lion coming, right? Anyway, so, so those are just to give you a feeling. Be sensitive. Don't make a big thing of it. Be sensitive to the fact that there is architecture here. The Holy Spirit's got his fingerprints all over this thing. The six liars. We say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice truth, he tells us in this first chapter. If we say that we have not sinned and we make him a liar and his truth is not in us. Second time we get the liar there. Third one, he saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments. He is a liar and the truth is not in him. Ouch. Some of these hurt, don't they? But it continues. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist and denieth the Father and the Son. If, I, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Ouch, these things are, uh, these aren't comfortable questions. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not, God hath made God a liar, because he hath believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. So that's John's logic. There it is, six of them. Spiritual fundamentals. We're going to see all-inclusive commandments, that we believe on Jesus Christ and that we love one another. That's going to be hammered home in many, many ways. A profession of love for others, the Father sacrificing his son, that's love's last word, and perfect love casteth out fear in chapter 4. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 123 John. Download the new K House TV app to access an ever growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.